the notion of John Bolton as uh, well warmonger, you know, who just wants to get us into a war, I think is wrong. Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. In just two tweets, President Trump may have totally changed American foreign policy. Earlier this month, Trump fired Secretary of State Rex Tillerson by tweet and in the same 280 characters, said that he would be replacing him at the State Department with CIA Director Mike Pompeo. Gina Haspel, a career intelligence officer, is Trump's pick to take over at the CIA. Then, just last week, the president tweeted that John Bolton, who was the UN ambassador under President George W. Bush, would be replacing H.R. McMaster as national security advisor. Bolton is the third person in that role since Trump took office after McMaster and Michael Flynn. This is an unusual time for such high-profile turnover. The Trump administration is planning a high-stakes meeting with the North Koreans. They're weighing whether to withdraw the U.S. from the Iran nuclear deal. They're preparing to release a proposal for Israeli-Palestinian peace. They're handling an increasingly bold and aggressive Russia. And they're putting in place aggressive trade policies against a rising China. And those are just the issues at the top of a very long list of America's diplomatic and national security challenges. Joining us now to discuss the impact that Bolton, Pompeo, and Haspel will have on American policy is Elliot Abrams of the Council on Foreign Relations. He has held many senior government positions, including deputy assistant to the president and deputy national security advisor in the George W. Bush administration. It was widely reported that Tillerson had picked Abrams to be his number two at the State Department before Trump overruled that appointment after learning of Abrams' criticism during the campaign. Thanks for joining us today, Elliot. It's my pleasure. Let's begin with the part of this foreign policy story that's already in the books. Uh, What will be Rex Tillerson's legacy at the State Department? Well, uh, of course, it's a short time as Secretary of State go to have a legacy, and I, I think uh, it won't be a very happy one. I think in a certain sense it will be the reminder that the switch from the private sector, where he was immensely successful, to the public sector, to the government, is not easy. And there are a number of people who in the past failed to make it. So I think it will be, in a sense, a caution to future presidents and to this president that you really need people who've got some government experience if they're going to make it successfully as government executives. Tillerson was a part of what some pundits have been calling the axis of adults, well-respected leaders within those government executives like uh, James Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, uh, John Kelly, the President's Chief of Staff, and H.R. McMaster, who's just left as National Security Advisor. People have suggested that these officials provided some kind of check on the president's impulses and inexperience. Is Mike Pompeo going to play this role? Does President Trump even need someone to act as a check on him? Well, first, I guess I'd say Rex Tillerson couldn't really play that role in the sense that he had no government experience himself. So the people who were described as playing that role were all generals. And that's not a good thing. I'm actually glad to see that McMaster at the National Security Council was replaced by a civilian, 
In the case of Mike Pompeo, he has many years in government because before he was the head of CIA, he was a congressman. So uh, he's already proved that he knows how to run a government agency, CIA, and uh, he also obviously knows about the relationship that's necessary with the legislative branch. I don't subscribe to this theory about, you know, being a check on the president. Uh, there's supposed to be a check on the North Koreans and on Iran and on <laughs> Russia, not on the president. Sure. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And it's the advice that they can provide to the president in dealing with those issues. That's why we really value them. Yeah. I, I You know, once upon a time, I worked in the Reagan administration, um, and I worked for George Shultz, as Secretary of State. And Shultz, whenever people would argue and say, the president's wrong about this, and the president's wrong about that, Schultz would hear them out, listen to the argument, and then he would always respond, you know, you may be right. And all you need to do is get yourself elected president. <laughs> Ronald Reagan got himself elected president. We're going to do it his way. Um, that's what cabinet members are supposed to do. Now, obviously, they do advise the president also. But it is right and proper in our system that the people who are elected have the final say. The loudest critics of Pompeo say that he's close with a cast of characters who attack Islam as an inherently violent theology and who disparage American Muslims. Do you think that that's a fair criticism? Well, I can't say that I'm deeply familiar with his record in Congress, um, but I have to say I don't know that it matters all that much. I mean, he's been in the administration now. He's performed, I think, as a general consensus, and I would certainly be there myself, that he's performed well as the head of the CIA, and there have been no such um, comments or accusations. So, you know, I don't really think that matters all that much. What about the reaction of the international community? How are they taking the news of this appointment? I think there's a general sense that Secretary Tillerson was not successful. And what's important for foreign governments is when you talk to the Secretary of State, does he speak to the president? Is he actually worth, in a sense, listening to and negotiating with because he can deliver? And after, I don't know, six months, that was not really true of Secretary Tillerson. I think there is a view that Pompeo was chosen because he has become close to the president over this uh, year, almost year and a half, and that gives him an enormous leg up in dealing with foreign governments, and they like that. I mean, above all, they want a secretary of state who speaks to the president and can get business done. So there's a generally positive reaction because they think maybe they'll have one now. Right. When Rex Tillerson would fly into a foreign capital, people didn't feel like he was bringing Donald Trump with him. He was, you know, acting as Rex Tillerson's secretary of state, but not necessarily a direct line, a diviner of the thoughts of, uh, of President Trump. Right. And that was exacerbated over the last few months because there was this sense of a gap or distance between the president and his own national security advisor, General McMaster. So you had foreign governments saying, well, you know, I don't know who to talk to. Do I talk to Jared Kushner? Who do I talk to to get the president's view? That's not good. Um, and, you know, we've had plenty of times in the past where uh, sometimes, you know, let's say when Henry Kissinger was national security advisor, people knew, okay, we talked to him. When Condi Rice was national security advisor, people more and more talk to her. They need somebody who can clearly represent the president. And in the last few months, I'd say there was a feeling in a lot of governments, we don't have it. And a lot of positions at the State Department were also vacant. 
So that's bad, and I hope we're on the way to repairing that now. To begin with, we have two people, Pompeo and Bolton, who are understood to be closer to the president and to represent his views. As he heads to the State Department, Pompeo is leaving the CIA after a little more than a year, and President Trump has nominated uh, Gina Haspel to replace him. The major question that I've heard for her seems to be about her history overseeing a CIA black site in Thailand where detainees were secretly tortured, whether or not any particular detainees were tortured under her watch was a, a matter that the, the press kind of chewed over for a while. Uh, but is there any problem in your mind with someone who was so closely tied to the CIA's torture program being promoted to run the agency? Well, I will disagree with you there. I will disagree with the use of the word torture. Okay. But the techniques that were used were approved um, in the U.S. government by lawyers who said, well, this is how we train Navy SEALs, this is not torture. Now, you can disagree with that, but I think it's unfair to say that when her agency, the CIA, was approved to do this and was doing this, you know, that a career person who carried out her instructions from the top, from the president and from the director, should now be penalized for it and told your career is over. And I think that's why you've seen some of, you've seen some Democrats, I believe James Clapper, who did this in the Obama administration, have come forward and said, she's a good officer, she spent 30 years at CIA, she should be confirmed. Now, obviously, there, you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee is going to have hearings about this, and we'll learn more than you or I know today. But I think the notion that, you know, if in the, if in Uh, those years you did not resign in protest, we're going to ruin your career now. I think that's a mistake, because the message that is sent to uh, people in the CIA is, you know, um, someday you're going to pay with your career uh, for being loyal to the president and the director. And I, I don't think that's the way to have an effective CIA. And again, I think, um, you know, this was national policy. The techniques, those so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, were briefed to the House and the Senate. The congressional leadership knew what was happening. So, you know, now everybody turns around 10 years later, 15 years later, and says, oh, my God, this is terrible. She should not be allowed to. And I think that's not a good way to run a government. Well, in in light of the fact that we don't use those techniques anymore, and in light of you know any concerns people may have uh, about Pompeo, do you envision a confirmation fight in the Senate over either Haspel or Pompeo? Yes, I mean, <laughs> this is going to come up. I don't think really with Pompeo very much, and uh, but it certainly will in her confirmation hearing, and rightly so. I mean, this is something that that should be discussed. And I'm not suggesting that those techniques should be restored. I'm not suggesting that at all. What I am suggesting is that when decisions are made by responsible officials, in this case the president and the CIA director, and the lawyers say this is the right thing to do or this is an acceptable thing to do, and it's briefed to Congress and they say, okay, go ahead, um, then to take it out on career officials at lower levels Um, I think is not fair and is not 
the right thing to do 10 or 15 years later. Elliot, let me just ask you quickly about two rumored replacements that never actually came to pass. UN Ambassador Nikki Haley had been tossed around by many as a possible Tillerson replacement. Tom Cotton, the Republican senator from Arkansas, seems to have been positioning himself to take over at the CIA. Is it only a matter of time before these two join the Trump administration? Or to put it another way, does Trump now have his team in place or should we expect more changes? Well, you know, the the first answer to that is I don't know, (laughs) Um, but I can speculate. I think the president felt um, that he had a team with a lot of people who were recommended to him, but whom he didn't know. Now he's got a team of people whom he knows better. He's known John Bolton. He certainly worked, you know, with Pompeo every day for the last uh, 15 months. I don't expect you will see Haley and Pancotton move into the administration. Uh, Well, she is in the administration, obviously, but move down to Washington. She's doing a fantastic job at the U.N. Ambassador Haley is, you know, wildly popular throughout the United States for the job she's doing there. And I would be surprised if the president moved her, certainly in this term, to a different position. Second term is a different question. On uh, Tom Cotton, whom I have an enormous amount of respect for, I think, you know, to give up what is essentially a safe Senate seat from Arkansas, where he could serve for decades, for four years in the CIA at the beginning of the administration, with four years to go, was one calculation. To do it halfway through, give up a safe Senate seat for, you know, a year and a half or something, I don't think that's really very likely. And he's been a very important part of the administration's tactics on Capitol Hill. So I think it's, as we're now, you know, if, if, if there were additional changes, we're talking about changes that are coming at the two-year mark, the two-and-a-half-year mark, the three-year mark. I don't think you leave a safe Senate seat for a year uh, in, the, in the executive branch. So I would say I think you're going to see Cotton and Haley stay where they are for the remainder of this term in her case, and I think permanently in his case, I think he's, um, he's just too important in the Senate. Of all of the recent changes, the appointment of John Bolton as national security advisor probably made the most headlines, and the hubbub hasn't died down yet. What was his reputation like when you two served together in the Bush administration? I must say I've been um, very unhappy about some of the nature of the press comment He's a madman. He's a warmonger. Because those aren't analyses. Those are just insults. They don't tell you anything. Mm-hmm. When I worked with John, which was in the George W. Bush administration, he had a reputation for being extremely smart, diligent, energetic, uh, excellent bureaucrat, and tough. My experience with him was John it was a person who uh, would fight you, but he wouldn't go uh, around and fight you secretly. He wouldn't go behind your back. He would say at an interagency meeting, I'm opposed to that. I think that's wrong. I think that's dumb. And the answer to that, of course, is engage in the argument. Tell him, as he and I sometimes did argue, John, you're wrong, and let me explain why. I think that some of what you're hearing is people who lost arguments to him because he was smarter and more energetic and better prepared than some of the other people at meetings. So I think it's a very good appointment, and I think that some of the complaints about him 
are just coming from people who don't agree with his policy views and who lost arguments. And I would have to say, I mean, if you're coming up against him in an argument, and I think people in the administration are going to find this very quickly, you'd better be prepared because he's prepared and he's a terrific advocate. Well, let me ask you this. Ross Douthat, the conservative columnist at The New York Times, summed up Bolton's worldview the other day this way. He said, quote, the default response to any challenge should be military escalation. And if one dangerous regime is succeeded by another, you kill the next round of bad guys, too. He's being glib, obviously. Right. But do you think an actual shooting war with Iran or with North Korea is more likely with Bolton at Trump's side? No. I don't. I think that what leads to miscalculation is weakness and the sense that we should push the Americans further. I mean, uh, if you look at someone like Putin, you know, he goes into Georgia, he goes into Ukraine, but he doesn't go into Poland. Why not? Because it's a NATO country. You never want him to make the miscalculation of trying a NATO country or there will be fighting. I think this is true of the Chinese. I think it's true of the Iranians. We want them to have a sense of American strength, not of American weakness. You know, the notion of John Bolton as uh, some kind of, of, uh, well, warmonger, you know, uh, who just uh, wants to get us into a war, I think is wrong. I mean, ultimately, of course, the president is the uh, decision maker. But look, the president believes in tough negotiations. We've just seen one of them. Uh, succeed in the case of South Korea. We have seen him uh, impose steel tariffs and then issue a list of exemptions for the EU countries, for Australia, for other American allies, for Canada and Mexico. It's, it's a way of negotiating with, you know, in a sense, from a position of strength, with a boom at the start, and then we start negotiating. I think you'll find John Bolton is a very tough negotiator and wants America to negotiate from a position of strength. But um, a position of strength, in my view, uh, doesn't make conflict more likely. It makes it less likely. Again, it's a sense of American weakness, and it is a possible miscalculation on the part of our opponents, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, that is more likely to lead to conflict. Bolton's highest-ranking role in government until now was as U.N. ambassador. But he's a longtime critic of the U.N. and and maybe of multilateralism in general. How do you think he, and Pompeo for that matter, will change America's role on the world stage? Well, I would say Bolton, first of all, is not a critic of multilateralism. He's a critic of multilateral institutions. Okay. Um, that is, uh, he believes in multilateralism. He certainly believes in, in NATO. Um, when he was in government, he was involved in something called the Proliferation Security Initiative, which was a voluntary coalition of the willing of countries trying to stop a weapons proliferation. But what he saw at the UN was a lot of these multilateral institutions get bloated, huge budgets, corruption. And we've certainly seen a lot of that with the UN. The Proliferation Security Initiative, which was a coalition of the willing, had no employees. It had no bureaucracy. So I I think he's very much in favor of multilateral coalitions and of the American alliance system, but less so of um, multilateral institutions that tend to cost a lot of money uh, and not be very effective. I think you'll see in Bolton and Pompeo 
first of all, two people who are not, uh, who don't view it as their role uh, to restrain and constrain the president and, and fight the president. I think you will see probably a, a tougher foreign policy stance. And part of that is rhetoric from Bolton and Pompeo than you had from their predecessors. I think you will see an appreciation for the American alliance system around the world. And I think that if you were to come back in, you know, six months, 12 months, I think you'd see a lot of American allies from Australia, Japan, South Korea to, you know, the French, the British, the Germans, um, happier uh, with, in a sense, a return of a more assertive United States. Back in 2015, John Kerry, who was then Secretary of State, came to AJC headquarters to make the case for the Iran nuclear deal. After speaking with him and with top European and Israeli leadership, AJC came out against the deal. But now that it's in place, we think it should stay in place, and we're in favor of new negotiations to lengthen and strengthen the deal. Pompeo and Bolton both agree with President Trump that the deal is not worth keeping. What is the future of the Iran nuclear agreement now? First, I'd say uh, the AJC position uh, back a few years ago was a correct decision. Um, This is a very weak um, arrangement and I think uh, very poorly negotiated by Secretary Kerry and brilliantly negotiated uh, by the Iranians. Now, the president's position has been this deal has to be fixed or we need to get out of it. And thus, negotiations are underway right now um, on some of the key conditions, adding uh, an agreement on uh, preventing missile development by Iran, eliminating the sunset provisions, meaning that that the deal just goes away in a few years, and adding intrusive inspections, which the Obama administration promised us all we were getting, but we are not getting. So the president is actually trying to do this. And I would imagine that when Pompeo and Bolton get in there, their first thing they'll do is to say, how are those negotiations going? What, in fact, are our European allies willing to add? I'm dubious that that's going to work. You know, I read the newspapers and I hear from friends in various places, and it doesn't seem to me that the negotiations are likely to cure the very great weaknesses of this deal. So if I were betting... I guess I'd bet that on May 12th, the president announces that the fix is not good enough. The the additions don't cure the problems of the nuclear deal. I'm not sure about that. I'm I'm not at the negotiations. I don't know exactly what the British are saying, the French are saying. But I guess if if I were going to bet, I'd bet we get out of the deal. So what happens then if America walks away? Well, I expect that Iran will not, that Iran will say, well, you know, Uh, The Americans are terrible, but we're going to maintain the terms of the deal. That is, they're not going to say, okay, the deal's over. We're now going to develop nuclear weapons. So I don't think we need to be afraid of some kind of rush to a bomb. I think that the United States could impose a number of sanctions, particularly financial sanctions, that would significantly harm the Iranian economy. So I I think the notion that if the president does that, you know, (laughs) the world comes to an end, and Iran is going to try to develop a nuclear weapon, and we're going to have a war, and it's just, I don't believe that. I I think that we will end up having further discussions, certainly with the Europeans. We have a mechanism 
to allow a snapback of sanctions. The president could, at the United Nations, the president could do that. He could do that partly. He could suspend some sanctions. So I think, obviously, he's got to develop a plan before May 12th, which is the date on which he needs to make a decision. He's got to develop a plan. He's got to announce it. Here's what I am doing today because we are getting out of this deal, if, in fact, that's the decision he makes. I think part of the problem here is that if we keep this deal in place, there is a tendency to think, oh, well, wow, thank God that Iranian nuclear problem is behind us. It isn't behind us because the nuclear deal, as it stands now, provides Iran, I think, a 10-year path to getting nuclear weapons. And that's unacceptable. And now is the time to think about that, not at the end of the deal, throwing it to the next president of the United States and saying, okay, you deal with it now. Or to put it differently, we cannot tolerate another North Korea. We cannot allow Iran to be the next North Korea. Elliot, thanks so much for joining us and for your insight. It's been my pleasure. Mireille Knoll was just a child when French Jews were rounded up and deported to Auschwitz in 1942. Through her mother's persistence and luck, Mireille avoided that fate. She and her mother found safety in Portugal, and she returned to France after the war. In the years that followed, she remade a life in Paris. Last Friday, the 85-year-old grandmother was stabbed 11 times and then lit on fire by two young Muslim men, one of whom was her neighbor. Police found her body in her charred and blackened apartment. One of Mireille's grandchildren wrote on Facebook that her family was left with no memories, no photo albums, no letters, nothing. The only thing that we have now are our tears. Calling in from our Paris office to discuss the reaction to this brutal murder is the Paris-based director of AJC Europe, Simone Rodin-Benzikin. Simone, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Mireille is the 11th Jew to be murdered in an anti-Semitic attack in France since 2006. Even one would be too many. But how can we make sense of a number as high as 11? There is uh, no really easy answer for this. Um, the reality is that we have witnessed an increase of anti-Semitism and in particular anti-Semitic acts since the very early beginning of 2000. Um, we have, I believe, um, waited far too long and in particular the success of French governments to recognize the profound problems that we are facing. Um, and Unfortunately, um, I think we have also um, not understood, or many government leaders have also not understood, that um, within um, the growing radicalization, um, Islamist radicalization, one of the essential ideologies is anti-Semitism. Um, so, unfortunately, this is the answer. I think we have waited for long. We had, have let the cancer grow. And this is, unfortunately, the situation in which we find ourselves today. Have the authorities gotten better at responding to these kinds of attacks, the, the French government? Does the Jewish community feel supported in the aftermath? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
I think since, uh, I would say, 2008, uh, 2007, when Minister, at the time, uh, Minister Sarkozy um, was Minister of Interior, um, successive governments have indeed um, started to grasp the extent of the problem. There is no doubt about the fact that uh, the current government has taken this issue extremely seriously. Only um, 10 days ago, it has announced a plan to combating anti-Semitism and racism. Uh, the president himself has made some very, very strong statements um, as recent as uh, 10 days ago. Um, he participated today um, at uh, the funeral of Mrs. Knoll herself, uh, which, of course, is a very symbolic gesture. So, yes, I think there is a uh, a certain understanding of the realities. I think the Jewish community understands this and uh, appreciates this. The problem is um, that there is a slight discrepancy between the very late understanding and the realities on the ground, meaning the increasing violence that Jewish communities have to face. You just mentioned that President Macron has been a real friend uh, in these situations. We've heard for years now, uh, as you said, dating back to Nicolas Sarkozy, we've heard leaders at the highest levels of French government make strong statements in support uh, of French Jews. They'll often say that these kinds of attacks against uh, Jews or against a Jewish person are assaults on France itself. But what more do we want to see done? You're absolutely right. I think, um, indeed, I think this is a very important thing. The fact that um, government leaders have understood that an attack against a Jew is not only an attack against a Jew, but it's an attack against France itself. So I think this is a very important step. What we do, I think, want to see more is a clear and uh, coherent zero tolerance um, policy that we want to see implemented. I'll give you a very simple example. There is a very famous anti-Semitic, um, how can we say, intellectual or propagandist here in France by the name of Alain Soral. He has um, a website that is basically a propaganda tool of anti-Semitic hate um, and that has hugely developed over the last years. Um, he has a lot of influence amongst young people and in particular in the difficult areas here in, in, in France. There have been condemnations because we have very strict um, hate crime laws in the past, but as recent as last week, he was acquitted. So there is a certain discrepancy between the will expressed by the president, by the prime minister, by the minister of interior, and then the realities on the ground. The same can be said, for example, last year a similar murder happened of an elderly woman, Sarah Halimi, and it actually took the courts nearly a year to admit, to understand and say that anti-Semitism was a motive in the murder of this woman. So again, it's a discrepancy between the will and then actually sort of implementing that policy into reality. So should we take some solace in the fact that after Murray was killed, the authorities responded very quickly to note the anti-Semitic nature of the attack as opposed to when Sarah Halimi was killed? Yes, I think so. And I think it's a very important step, um, not only that um, the authorities have reacted right away, um, and by the way, we'll have to await the trial itself and we'll have to see the results of, of, of what comes out of it. But yes, it, it is definitely um, a solace. Uh, I think an understanding of what went wrong a year ago 
Um, I also think that the fact that the, there has been very quickly a public response by public officials, uh, which wasn't necessarily the case a year ago, where it took several months for public officials to speak out, I think also now the fact that right away public officials have spoken out, including the president, including uh, um, at the highest level of the state, I think is, is an important, a very important step. What we now will have to see is whether um, civil society reacts, but because this is also something that has lacked in the past and that has rendered Jews in France very lonely. Uh, because there was a lack of a demonstration of solidarity by French people of horrors that the Jewish community of France have been going through with it throughout the years. Simone, just uh, a few hours ago, we heard that the office of the Union of French Jewish Students at the Sorbonne was uh, was vandalized with anti-Semitic and pro-Palestinian messages scrawled on the walls. Uh, this is the most visibly Jewish place at the university a target. Are you worried about the safety of young Jews? And are you worried about the hatred shown by other young people? Of course. Um, of course, I'm worried. I'm worried not only about young people, I'm worried about uh, Jews in general. <laughs> um, but yes, of course, also um, specifically about young people. There are several universities here in France where we've seen all kinds of movements in the past, from apartheid weeds to, to BDS movements, which have already created an atmosphere of fear, or at least people feeling relatively uncomfortable, but this goes a huge step further. So sort of to create an atmosphere where young people now have to be afraid of being identified as Jewish and uh, going into a Jewish uh, office in the, un- the Union of the Union of Jewish Students is obviously of huge concern. Uh, now, again, what is positive is the fact that the authorities have reacted straight away. I think about 10 minutes after um, it was discovered, the Minister of Higher Education, as well as the interministerial ministerial delegate in the fight against racism and anti-Semitism, have reacted straight away. But it doesn't change the reality. And the reality is, nevertheless, that the situation and the security situation of Jews and, yes, also young Jews is very, very serious. Thank you, Simone. I know you're incredibly busy planning a march in memory of Mireille and against this surge of anti-Semitism. Please know that we're all standing with you in this work. Thank you so much. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? This weekend begins a timeless festival that extols the themes of redemption and faith. I refer, of course, to the March Madness finals. And so, to Passover's four questions, we add one more. March Madness. Good for the Jews? Or, more to the point, which Final Four team should we Jews root for? Perhaps one of the public schools, University of Michigan or University of Kansas. Michigan and Jews go way back. In the 1920s, when Ivy League schools first implemented quotas to limit the number of Jewish students they accepted, young Jews began flocking to Michigan. The school earned the nickname the Harvard of the West. Today, there are over 5,000 Jewish undergrads. If you choose to root for the Jayhawks, you'd be joining famous Kansas Jewish alum Paul Rudd. 
Before his big break in Hollywood, Rudd worked as a bar mitzvah DJ, which may bode well for his team going far in the big dance. Or if our team isn't one of the public schools, then it must be one of the two Catholic schools, Loyola or Villanova. Generations of Loyola teams dating back to at least the 1940s featured Jewish players and black players long before integrated teams were the norm. And as for Villanova, Dr. Joel Fish, a member of the Philadelphia Jewish Sports Hall of Fame and a sports psychologist, said in a recent interview that Villanova's perennial success can be attributed to their confidence and consistency. This year, the final four matchups will take place during the Passover Seder on the second night of the Festival of Freedom, as we remember the Israelite people's exodus from Egypt. Whichever team makes it to the promised land, may your Passover and the whole year ahead be blessed with the intellectual growth of Michigan students, the good humor of Kansas's Paul Rudd, the openness of Loyola, and the confidence and consistency of Villanova. That would certainly be good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org Passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at Passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Alex Zeldin. Our sound engineer is Scott Reitherman. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.